Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. The best marketers are incredibly curious all the time, even when they think they know the best path or the answer based on experience over time. They're still curious and they're still inquisitive and, and willing to always be in an open experimentation mindset. 90% of the marketers out there are good at their job. They have good experience. But when it comes to like really just being drivers, putting the pedal down and proactively going above and beyond the scope of their role to find results, 90% of the marketers out there won't, won't meet that cut. What's up, Eli? Welcome to the podcast. Daniel. Hey, man. Great, great to be here. I want to just kick it off and ask you how you got into marketing. You know, my path to marketing was winding and non-traditional. I actually went to art school back in the day. And after dropping out of art school, decided to start a software company. We raised venture money in the Bay, and that business ended up getting acquired in 2014. And after the acquisition, I had to do you know your typical earnout with our acquirers and all that jazz. But after all that was done, our VCs started sending me around to early stage portfolio companies and asked me to help them with growth. And so really that was, I'd say through my own journey as a software founder, that was my first exposure to marketing. And then because of the successes that we'd had there, I started taking those patterns that I had found and matching them up to the portfolio companies to help them with growth. And before I knew it, people started referring to me as like the marketing guy, which is hilarious because I have you know no formal training aside from trial by fire. I love it. I think the best marketers are trial by fire anyway. I've, I've heard people come from being a teacher. I've heard somebody come from working at a restaurant. I think that's what's cool about marketing is it's a learned skill if you, if you just put your learnings behind it and and just try. But I want to go into a topic that you are, have become more widely known as is demand efficiency. Could you go into what demand efficiency means to you? And then we could talk about more tactical, like how to execute and be more demand efficient. So before I explain what demand efficiency is, I like to back up and talk about the kind of frustration and pain that led to the creation of demand efficiency as a category and, and a metric, actually. So I, I think all of us marketers can relate to that feeling of when you're sitting in a room with non-marketing executives. To them, marketing is a bit of a black box, which scares them. And it also makes them like behave in certain ways where you really have to command slash earn the respect of that room in order to buy yourself the space to do what you know is right for the marketing program. And so to non-marketers, again, marketing is like a black box. To marketers, it's like, hey, I've got my gut, I have my experience, and I have my data. And the confluence of those three things are what lead to successful execution, successful plans and results. All the while, the, the non-marketing execs have to trust. So that's generally a problem because it puts us in a defensive place almost all the time. 
or where we have to be playing really, really good offense to stay ahead of them getting to that place where we have to be defensive as marketers. What I realized was that kind of distrust and that feeling of the black box is because there are only two measures that matter at the end of the day for marketing. It's how much ARR did we bring in? How much revenue did we bring in? And how are we influencing cost to acquire customer? Both of those are very bottom funnel, right? So there has to be a lot of trust and like almost suspended belief between them, all of the effort that we're putting in up front. And then wait, depending on obviously the, the selling model, waiting to see those results shake down to the bottom line of the business in terms of ARR and cost to acquire. So the realization for me was we need a leading, leading indicator or why isn't there a leading indicator for reducing cost to acquire before it actually shakes down to the bottom. And so this leads us to demand efficiency, the demand efficiency framework and the demand efficiency score. So the demand efficiency score is essentially a leading indicator that companies can use after taking a self-assessment that is the best predictor to determine if in, you know, depending on their business model, again, X number of months, they execute these programs and improve their score, their cost to acquire will go down, or at least marketing attributed cost to acquire. Um, and up until this point, there really hadn't been anything like that. It has just been like, hey, the marketer has to keep the trust and faith of the leadership team until we see those changes trickle down. So yeah, it was it, it started off as this effort to create a leading indicator for reducing cost to acquire. And now it's become this whole framework that companies are using to identify all of the low-hanging fruit levers and some of the less obvious levers that they can pull to drive efficient demand. What goes into the inputs of cost to acquire customer? Because every company, does, you can do different things to be what CAC is. You can either add sales call like the sales team being in there the customer success but what is like the inputs that go into this cac model so in this case we are talking about marketing attributed cost to acquire because obviously we want this to be an empowering tool that actually delivers real results as opposed to something where you have to rely on other business units you know exclusively so marketing attributed cost to acquire it takes a full 360 around all pieces of the business and of the marketing programs like this is the underlying theme and point behind demand efficiency, which is most of the talking heads in marketing, and I'm guilty of being one of them, talk a lot about demand capture and demand creation. And because the conversation centers around that, there's nothing wrong with that, but because the conversation centers around kind of those two key themes, we end up spending a lot of time as marketers obsessing about being technically excellent in channel, right? Best practices in channel comparing ourselves to other companies in channel. The result of that is that there are a lot of ignored surfaces, a lot of connective tissue that never gets attention because it's not as big of a lever or as obvious of a lever as demand capture, demand creation within channel. So what do I mean by that? Well, people are busy optimizing their channels instead of, let's say for example, there are 50 different points in the business they're probably more, where you could improve conversion rates by 0.5% or 1% or 1.5%, something like that, like really low, small numbers. And let's say that in order to do so, it took you between three days to three weeks of your team's effort. It doesn't sound like it's worth it, 
right? But then if we imagine there are 50 to 100 of these small surfaces, these connective tissues across the entire buyer journey that marketing touches, well, if you went and took the time to optimize each of those and you saw, let's just for mass, like say the 1% conversion rate increase across each of those, now you're talking about cutting your cost to acquire it half or more on the whole. And so it's the whole concept behind demand efficiency is looking at the entire picture paying a lot of attention to those often disregarded surfaces to then in aggregate drive outsized results, reducing in cost to acquire and defining efficient demand. The way I think about it, simply marketing, if you could simplify marketing in the sense is how many people come in through each channel and the next point is how do they convert and that equals ARR. And then you can go into like how efficiently those, like the conversion rate is efficiently, but how much you can tweak each one of those points to make sure like it's efficient that Facebook or Google or LinkedIn or whatever. But a lot of people think about, okay, channel, and then they forget about the 18 points that come like, there's so many points I can even think about now. It's like, landing page optimization, form optimization, handoff to sales. Exactly. Emails, like all these points, but they, most marketers are just like, oh, we need a new channel to bring in more leads or we need a channel to bring more. But really that 1% in the bottom of the funnel of like opportunity to sale could double revenue. Sometimes it depends what type of company you are. I want to go into like tactically, what are some things that you look at to improve that demand efficiency metric? So originally this was an internal framework. This was something that we used when we were going through discovery with our clients. Obviously we've worked with names like you know, Dropbox, Hop and Com, Product Board, Loom. So a good number of really recognizable high growth companies. And this was our internal framework for evaluating where opportunity was what I realized was this is something we needed to open source. Like there are plenty of companies who can't work with us, who might not be the right fit, but who would really benefit from having access to this data and to this model. So we actually put it on our website and I'm going to just, we'll do this live together and you can feel free to edit out anything that's not interesting here. But so if I go to mattermade.co and go over to, we have a tab called demand efficiency. And there are two pieces to this. There's the benchmark data, which is all of the people who have taken the evaluation get into this benchmark, and it allows companies to compare their programs by funding stage, by selling motion, to see how they're doing alongside their peers. So like looking at this right now, companies like Sendoso, the CMOs at Sendoso, Sixth Sense, Box, Madkudo, Demandbase, Lacework, Mutiny, UserGems, so the list goes on and on, metadata, uh, Webflow, all of these leaders have come in and actually taken the demand efficiency evaluation. So the evaluation itself, it's a seven minute evaluation. It asks a series of questions about their entire program, walking around key themes, like, you know, we've got obviously like awareness, top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom of funnel, messaging and positioning, experimentation, PLG, or if, if they're not a PLG company, you know, how they approach SMB mid-market or enterprise sales. So it really walks around the full 360 of all of their efforts. And then within each of those categories, digs into the minutia. 
So let me take an example. Why don't we use metadata? So I can see here, they, after taking the evaluation, they scored really high on messaging alignment, middle of funnel and bottom of funnel. And the areas that they could improve, it actually spits out an efficiency improvement checklist for them. So the areas that they could improve are some on the top of funnel, retention, expansion, customer focus. And then they have a 20 lever list, lever being like a project or some sort of initiative that would ultimately lead to greater efficiency and or greater demand. And so if we wanted to talk about like, okay, what are some of these specifics here? Some of the specifics on their list are creating an agreed upon SLA for lead opportunity definitions and handoff between sales and marketing. That was something you already mentioned. So like great intuition there. They haven't invested heavily in their SEO program. So it's recommending making investments there as a more long-term initiative for CAC reduction. Another recommendation it's making is creating post-lifecycle programs to drive user to champion and account growth and loyalty. So, I mean, these are like very tactical levers that, that they could just go down the checklist and implement. And you could imagine how even just the, the two or three that I listed just now, like those are probably going to lead to significantly higher conversion rate on their funnel than the 0.5 to 3% that I had referenced earlier. And they've got, what is this? Yeah, 15 of them that they could work on here. So I think one issue a lot of companies have too is all those points that you said need help. A lot of times they don't have someone great to fix that. So it could be that, yeah, let's figure out lead to sales handoff, but who's going to do that? How do we do that more efficiently? It's sometimes worse to implement something that's actually bad than implement something great. So what do you recommend? How do you evaluate internally? Like, what should we do based on the resources we have? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I mean, I think A, that's why a lot of folks end up working with MatterMade is because they already have the folks on their team who already have a list of priorities for their you know quarter, year, whatever. And so a lot of the time, this this checklist for efficiency improvement will spit itself out for them after they take the evaluation. They'll go, this is all great, but like, shit, when do I find the time? You know, how do I, how do I make this work? And so the answer sometimes is working with us. The answer sometimes is hiring more people. The piece of this that is almost always the hardest is seeing your blind spots in the first place, which is what the demand efficiency framework seeks to solve for. And so, you know, if we, if we take, I'll take another one from their list launch nurture sequences to increase post-close retention, land and expand within existing accounts and tier-to-tier upsells. So like by the time it spit that insight out, that's just a bunch of really tactical work. You know, like you just, you need someone who's proficient in whatever their map is, whether it's HubSpot, et cetera. You need that person to be paired up with an SME on their team who understands how to speak to the persona and use case of their their customer base between tier-to-tier upsells uh, and just kind of that insider knowledge. But then really, it's just a game of like sitting down, buckling someone to a chair and doing the work and then measuring and experimenting and reporting from there. So, you know, a lot of time, again, that's why people come to us is just to give them that extra bandwidth or they'll say, hey, there are enough things on this list. Why don't we cost justify a full-time employee or two just to sprint after these opportunities as just pure green space? One thing you mentioned a little bit too was there was like short-term wins where you can, let's say, make an SLA between sales and marketing or pop conversion rate on your website or fix your form. But I think one thing we t- you talked a little bit also about like long-term like SEO. One question I had for you 
because I know this doesn't happen a lot in B2B, like how would you add something that's like brand focused that like in the long term that could up conversion rates, say like you have an SDR team and they prospecting in an area where like they don't know your brand and you up like your brand awareness in that area or something like that. So how do you balance like the short-term quick wins versus like implementing a long-term strategy of like SEO or brand plays or social or like these things that take a little bit of time to build? I love where your head's at with that. That's actually the next kind of layer that we're adding on to the the free tool on our on our site where people can take this evaluation. It spits out the results for themselves. So because you're absolutely right. You look at this list. Some of these are now term initiatives where they could get them done in a day or two. Some of them are near term initiatives. They might take a week or two. Some of them are mid or long term investments where it's like you want to get the ball rolling now, but it's going to take 12 months before you see the yields from it, but it's still worth doing, right? It's not, you shouldn't ignore it for that reason. And so I think the current challenge is it spits out this list, but it's on the marketing leader to prioritize that list and understand like what's now term, near term, midterm, long term, and where should we start making those investments? So hopefully by call it two, three months from now, we'll have that next next version, next generation of the of the software on our site that'll actually show them all of these initiatives laid out on a roadmap and prioritized by how big of a lift is this versus like long tail effects and and kind of long-term initiatives that you should be investing in. Yeah. And then the other question I had is along the lines of, we talked a little bit about these channels that are that produce revenue, but sometimes the problem with a lot of companies is that the way that they, it's reported on a way that data is captured is the wrong way. And it's actually like biasing certain channels. I know that's like part of like what people have talked about demand creation, but I've seen it personally as a, a marketing ops person where people just keep investing in like Google AdWords because they think, but like they branded search that they dumping more money in where like, obviously someone has to search for a branded term to be, make a branded search play. So how do you think about that? Uh, when you go into a company, you say like, let's see how you even like tracking these metrics before we even start doing any of this. So the funny thing is, again, like we've worked with the vast majority of the hottest B2B tech startups in the last five years. And the common theme is that no one has nailed attribution and tracking, even when they're already, you know, like even some of the companies that are like series C and beyond where you'd assume they have their shit together. Sometimes they're the biggest dumpster fires when it comes to, to reporting and attribution. And that makes it really hard to make wise decisions and you, you can't really fault the companies for it like if you think about how most of these companies get to that point they are early stage they start throwing spaghetti at the wall running a ton of experiments seeing what sticks and then things start working they get excited they'd start doubling down and and fast forward now a year and a half two years they don't even really know why things are working they just know they've been throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and so then you have to come in and untangle the mess and figure out like how do we attribute and not only how do we attribute, how then can we build more brand coverage in addition to, because like the board wants stuff now, the CEO wants stuff now, sales team wants stuff this quarter, this month, this week. And so a lot of the prioritization ends up being biased towards what can we do this week to drive more pipeline next week to drive. So our sales team can hit their numbers 
this month and this quarter. And we kind of like, there's this, I don't actually know how the saying goes, like you cut off your nose to spite your face or whatever. Um, but to your point, you do, you under invest in those longer term awareness initiatives that will ultimately lead to a more scalable and efficient pipeline on the long haul. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and this is just like a theory I have in marketing, and I want to get your take on it is there's a stat out there, like the average CMO is 18 months, like this quick turnover. But the reason I think that's the case is because they come in and they have to do all these like quick win, fast revenue stuff, but they don't think about these long-term plays. Like they don't come into it and think, I want to be the CMO for 10 years of the company. If I was doing this strategy for the five to 10 years, what would I focus on? As well as like the quick wins, you obviously you have to get revenue into the door, but they think about these quick wins, they up revenue so much their first year that the second year they can't get the same results because they've been doing actions that have caused detriment to the longer term play of like, hey, we've over emailed our customers. We're over like too much ad frequency. They've seen our ads too much. Like all these actions that got them the leads in the first place and the the revenue, but now they've kind of burnt out their audience. I think there are a couple of things at play. One of them is definitely what you're talking about, where you know e- even the execs themselves come in with this mindset of knowing that it's a bit transactional, right? You're like coming in for your tour of duty. You know it's going to be generally a certain amount of time. So I think that's one piece. I think the other piece is it's stage appropriate leaders are brought in, right? So let me give an example. Like you're not going to bring in Megan Eisenberg, you know, former CMO at. MongoDB, Trip Actions, and DocuSign for a seed stage or Series A company, right? Her skill set is way overclocked for a company at that stage that still just needs to do a lot of learning, a lot of experimentation, but not in like a scaled experimentation sense. A lot of the tools in her tool chest, and I'm just making this up, but like I would imagine after a handful of conversations with her, you know, she is all about data and systems and a high degree of sophistication and scale when it comes to those things. And so I think that that life cycle of the average CMO lasting 18 months, whatever that stat is, also has to do with, and this dovetails back into your points, like the stage appropriate leader comes in, they whip out all the tools in their tool chest, or at least that they're like the, the quick win tools for the first year. They put up some big wins on the board. Then the second year, they're, they, they're kind of stalled out on like, where's the low hanging fruit for me? And then poof, they bring in a new stage appropriate leader who comes back in with now their their stage appropriate list of suggestions, which might be like a lot of the stuff, frankly, like as you get more and more sophisticated, these leaders are bringing in the tools and, and levers that are in the demand efficiency framework where, you know, they're going to look like a hero, but the things that they're doing aren't actually that complicated. They're just looking in the dark corners that the previous leader didn't spend time in. I mean, I think that's a good point. I also think it's a good thing for marketers to know because i think i'm a better functioning like seed series a series b marketer where i can move fast i could break things i could take more risks i don't have red tape versus like working at like a public company where there's a lot of politics but you have to know how to do that and there's a lot of scale and there's a lot like the scale is so big you have to manage a bunch of different people i think you got to know where you are and you're what type of market you are and what type of skill sets you are. So I think it's good to actually know that. But I think there's 
at the same time, like for mar- like marketing, such a long game that like those quick wins also can hurt you in the long time. If you don't think about what we just talked about earlier, those long-term plays, like actually we should think about doing SEO while we're doing these quick wins. Or we actually should think about doing some brand stuff while we're doing these quick wins, like not overload yourself, but do small little things that one brand of it, initiative one or like one long-term initiative like at the start or once every quarter or something like that what is a marketing hill you would die on i think it comes back to the attribution and tracking piece you would maybe or maybe not be shocked at the number of times i've had pretty talented ceos and boards say like yeah, we understand that it's important for us to be tracking, but can you just like, just do the stuff, just like start doing the stuff. So the results come in and then we'll figure it out after the fact. That's what we step into a lot of times as marketers who have been doing that because of the pressure and they didn't say no or push back in some capacity. And it ends up slowing the company down so much down the road, right? So it's like a go, you can either go a little bit slower now to go faster and scale with fewer limitations in the future, or you can go faster now to create kind of a clusterfuck for yourself and have to untangle that and slow way down and probably have like leadership be blamed for it and then a change in leadership and then bring in new leadership and that leadership has to ramp. So it's like on the face of it, market like attribution and tracking seems like an easy thing to kick down the road. But then when you take into consideration the downhill effects of that, it's like, oh, well, the VP of marketing couldn't tell the board what were sustainable channels because they had listened to the CEO in the beginning of the the year and just like sort of pumping stuff out there and they didn't have their storytelling around what's working, what isn't dialed. So then the VP of marketing got replaced and there are a couple of people on the team who got replaced. And now you're like six to nine months before the new people are in their seats, productive and beginning to implement proper attribution tracking. So it like, it can really quickly spiral from something that seems pretty benign to something that is pretty gnarly. I also think a lot of things you've been saying, especially like demand efficiency, all this stuff is a lot of it's like foundational things that should be done early on, like making sure that people are talking properly to leads that come in, that you're putting in and spending money and time to to bring in the funnel should be done when you start before you like when you're doing your channel strategy like totally do i have a form that can convert do i have a correct handoff so people know how to talk to these people do they know that these people have been educated but they not have too like as much intent as someone who did a google branded search like do these people know these things ahead of time that can make this process more efficient but a lot of people just were like, okay, I'm just going to start launching a channel. We're going to get a lot of leads in the door and let the sales team figure out they're going to close it. But they haven't, the sales team is confused. Everybody's confused. You have leaky funnels everywhere. And then, then it's just a patch job, like I'm just duct tape to try replaces, unless you have someone who's good who can go rebuild the foundation again. So a lot of the stuff you're saying is like, do this at the start because otherwise you're going to have to come in and do this stuff. Obviously, Along the way, you're gonna. Some leaders might not know these tactical things you could do because they haven't been exposed by experience and stuff like that. That's why your demand efficiency thing works. But there's some foundational things that people don't think about 
ahead of time that could save them so much time, efficiency, CAC that could be set up earlier. Another hill I would die on that doesn't get as much love as it should, but has such a huge impact on conversion rates and success in demand is creative. How creative is your creative? And and do you have the ability to have high creative throughput such that you can run a ton of tests and experiments and not have creative become a bottleneck? One of the very first strategic initiatives that we implement when we partner with a client, if they don't already have that capability is bring in, there's an agency called um, No Boring Design. I think it's noboringdesign.com. They essentially are like, they have a creative director and they have a designer or two. And all they do is think about like, when it comes to the creative in market, how can we make this new novel fresh such that it stands out? And then also in partnership with the marketers who are driving campaigns, like what are the multivariate tests on the creative side that we're going to run to benchmark and improve creative performance and conversion rates because of creative? If a team doesn't have that talent in-house, but isn't willing to invest in it, then it's we just won't even engage with them because that's such an important piece to seeing success. Nowadays, when you have agencies out there like No Boring Design, where you know you can essentially get that talent for less than the cost of a full-time headcount, it's just a total no-brainer. I've been guilty of this early in my career that I've blamed the channel instead of blaming myself as a marketer because there's so many things like, hey, I didn't have great creative, I didn't have good copywriting, I did, might have not had good targeting, I might have not had a good landing page, I might not have a good form, and I didn't do like the due diligence to be like, hey, let's try a new creative, like let's try a new copyright, let's make a new landing page, make sure the landing page cover, and like this make me add, take up a field of the form or add a field in the form to make it more better conversion let's make sure the handoff happens let's make sure like we have a good post email that comes out let's make sure like the sequences for the sales team like all these little steps like but then first thing a marketer wants to do is like say is like oh facebook sucks or instagram sucks like but if people are successful on it the channel doesn't suck it's just the things in the process that is broken that you need to fix um a lot of the time and the creative is a big one i think that's the thing B2B gets so wrong is like they don't invest in good creative and then they get screwed. Thinking back on a story for for that exact point, there was a company, they don't exist anymore, called Alta Motors. They're an electric motorcycle company. Uh, they had won like motorcycle of the year and and super cool tech, but they were they were not having success in channel. Their conversion goal was to get people to show up to an event where they'd bring some bikes for people to actually ride to get over the stigma of like, it's an electric motorcycle. Like I like my gas machine. It sounds cool. Like that's what I'm used to. Why like electric is lame. But they, they knew if they could get people on bikes, there was this aha moment. And so when they brought me in, their costs to get someone on a bike seat was $37 in Facebook. Um, and that was our primary channel. And basically we sat down and tweaked everything. I was like, well, when we're communicating with them, like what is the underlying driver 
for their love of motorcycling? Is it speed? Is it the idea of power? Is it being in nature? Is it like you just walk around that, that piece of it? And then the next one is like, when they see imagery about motorcycling, what gets them fired up? Is it someone jumping a bike in the air? Is it someone ripping around a corner? Is it someone in nature going through the woods? And you know, you walk around enough of these instances and run enough of these experiments against each other, you're able to very quickly drive meaningful results. I think by the time we finished that round of experimentation, we got their cost for a demo, essentially in their case, down from $37 to it was like a dollar thirty-five. And then it that wasn't sustainable. It ended up normalizing around like seven to nine dollars. But it's like nothing else changed. The targeting didn't change. It was it was purely messaging and creative in concert with each other. I just had a, a talk to someone and I think a lot of people don't think that you can use paid advertising for efficiency reasons, meaning like find message market fit and find all these little things where a lot of people think you only have to use paid ad, but adver- paid advertising is just guaranteed distribution to an audience that you pick. So if you research. want to, yeah, it's research. So if you want to spend a little bit of market research to figure out, does this ad work with my audience and run, you can do it cheaply too. You don't have to do expensive, run a bunch of different creative to figure out what message is more, will fit with your audience. If a younger market was starting marketing today, what advice would you give them that would, they would come back to you two years later and thank you for? Curiosity and proactivity will be the two defining factors in, your, in the level of success and happiness that you find in marketing. The best marketers are incredibly curious all the time, even when they think they know the best path or the answer based on experience over time, they're still curious. And they're still inquisitive and and willing to always be in an open experimentation mindset. That's one. And two, on the proactive piece, I mean, I could cut out 90% 90 of the marketers out there are good at their job. They have good experience. But when it comes to like really just being drivers, putting the pedal down and proactively going above and beyond the scope of their role to find results, 90% of the marketers out there won't won't meet that cut. So I think you can very quickly put yourself in the top 10% by simply always coming to the table every day with like a day zero proactive mindset and always questioning everything, being very curious. I think that's great advice. I think a lot of people think that, and this happens like I've done exactly what you've told me to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Like exactly, they what like curiosity happens with ideas, but it also could be like, what could I do else to learn more marketing? What else could I could I help you with this project? Re- in reasonable ways of like making sure you get your priorities done too. But there's also like coming to the table and like, how could I do this job differently today? Like this task. Different. I want to give you one or two minutes to say where people could find you, find this demand efficiency test and anything else you want to bring to the table. For folks who want to learn more about Mattermade and all of the B2B companies that we've helped grow and helped reduce their marketing attributed cost to acquire, you can cruise to mattermade.co, M-A-T-T-E-R-M-A-D-E.co. 
and that'll give you all the information you need. Also, in the top nav bar of our site, you'll see a drop down for demand efficiency. And so there you can see the leaderboard, the benchmark data. You can also take the, takes about seven minutes. You can take the evaluation yourself and it'll actually spit out personalized results based on all of your answers, like some of the ones we talked about earlier. Again, we've got you know CMOs at publicly traded companies and some of the fastest growing SaaS companies who have filled it out and said like, wow, this is super insightful and helpful. Um, and these are already some of the greatest minds in marketing. So uh, I think it can just be a nice pair to your existing strategy and, and a bit of a gut check. So that's that. And then I wanted to give a plug to our friends over at No Boring Design, since I mentioned them earlier. So uh, I think they it, it's significantly less than the cost of an in-house design hire. And we've worked with them across clients like you know, Dropbox, Yelp, Calm, Product Board, Loom, Grain. They've done fantastic work every single time, super creative and also very fast, like same day, next day type of, of results across landing page design. They do campaign design, assets, brand, social, all the stuff. So can't say enough good things about them as well. And their website is noboringdesign.com. Cool. Yeah. Everybody needs a good design team, whether you have one outsource it, which is probably the fastest way if you can build it in-house. Um, but everybody needs good designers and we've talked about a good creative. So I'm going to check them out and see what they got going on. So thank you so much. And this has been great. Yeah. Hell yeah, Daniel. Always great to chat with you. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.